1: chase thomas podcast. the chase thomas
2: podcast um <laughs> my nephew needs me to
1: record see i hate
2: i already hate it i hate it all right hello and welcome back to another episode of the chase thomas podcast where i'm still at the aforementioned chase thomas coming to you live from knoxville tennessee everything school hq where i am joined by the illustrious not fan graph zone john taylor up there in new york city oh yeah john taylor he's back talking baseball and John, it's a great day for baseball because I listened uh, earlier today. Some uh, around the house, I'm like uh, Buck Showalter I'm foul territory and Buck Showalter, man. He's now on my must get on the pod at some point uh, managers because the man's not because some old older managers, you know, they don't like you either go one of two ways. You either take the changes and everything else and how human beings evolve and how uh, different people are over time you either take it in stride and enjoy it or you go the uh, the the angry the grumpy old man like you either you go one of two ways there's never a middle ground and buck showalter is uh he's fun man i listen to it and i'm like who can't like buck showalter like it was one of my favorite managerial interviews i've ever heard so i highly encourage people to go check it out buck showalter a plus yeah
3: rate. the older uh, a former manager player gets the more likely that they're just gonna hit fuck it mode where they're mm-hmm. just like I no one. I don't have to protect anyone anymore. Nothing matters. I can say whatever I feel like. Um, the gold standard with this is retired Hall of Famers because no one can tell them shit about anything at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but a guy like Buck, who I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 99% sure that his gig with the Mets is going to be his last managerial gig. I can't imagine. Uh, that he's he's what now 70 70 um, like somewhere in that general range well, he 67. said he's open
2: and like one of the things but he was clear he's like he's he's just an ethical dude he was like i don't really want to talk about other because i don't want other people to loot talk about other people's jobs why they have them and this that and the other he was like if something comes up you never know but uh I'm, he's not going to speculate on another people's job so it's hard to say if buck Walters already coached his or managed his last team
3: yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the odds are probably pretty likely that, you know, he's 67, mm. his time with the Mets obviously didn't go particularly well. I think he's kind of lost that um, that kind of, uh, what do you want to call it, that sheen of being like a, a guy to take over kind of a, a, a struggling crew, uh, given mm. how things played out with the Mets. You know, you never say never, but I think he if-
2: probably helps his case, though, right?
3: Yeah, I, I have to imagine that's true. Although Boshi, at least, is coming from a place of, hey, I won three World Series, whereas Buck's whole thing has forever been, I'm the guy you fire before you win a World Series.
2: And it's sad, because Buck's awesome. I feel like players like Buck. I would like to and, and, and play for is, Buck.
3: Which is, I think, always been his one of his selling points, is I'm a player's manager in the sense that yeah. these guys like and respect me and will play hard for me. Um, which I think was mostly the case with the Mets anyway. It just seemed... I, I, it's funny when people talk about last year's Mets team and what went wrong. You know, I've read like half a dozen like in-depth reported pieces on like what happened to the 2023 Mets, and no mm. one can really seem to agree on any like one specific or tangible thing as to what happened. Yeah. It just seems like uh and to sound like like a Gen Zer, uh, it just sounds like the vibes were off for yeah. that entire team and it just it just they would not have passed a vibe check. So no. uh yeah, but I, I don't know. But it, either way, whether or not Buck comes back to the to the dugout, I get the sense that he is in his uh, kind of like a, a, a tenured professor who just doesn't have to teach a class anymore. And is just can, like I can just kind of say and do whatever I want at this point. Um, he's earned it. He's earned it. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. He's been doing this job for it's three decades now, four decades, yeah. whatever it is. Um, Yeah. But Buck has earned his 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 time uh, on the farm, so to speak.
2: I'd like him at a booth or something. I don't know where he belongs, but I think he has a, if he wants to do it, um, I think he'd be good. Uh, He'd be interesting insight and just, um, and his openness to analytics and his openness to the people aspect to it. I don't know. He's just your kind of, he's just your kind of modern, older established manager. I don't know. I hope Buck gets one more, one more crack somewhere. Um, no, I, but,
3: I think it, I think it's certainly possible. I, um, I just wouldn't bet on it.
2: Yeah, that's fair. Um, what I wouldn't have bet on, John Taylor, is Theo Epstein ever returning to the Red Sox in any kind of uh, meaningful capacity? And yet. Yeah, I, I wrote year, that one off years ago. Is that where we are, John Taylor? Explain to me what the latest this week with Theo Epstein and how much has that changed how you feel about where the Red Sox might be going?
3: So it's hard to know exactly because these senior management advisor positions, whatever you want to call them, that it basically exists as a way to give. Uh, in particular, retired older guys like Bugshow Walter, uh, mm. a job and a place to be and a connection, they're always very vague in what exactly the responsibilities of these guys are. And mm. If anything, they kind of just seem to be like a, a, a job retraining program for like fired general managers to just go kick it somewhere for like a it's couple It's like what of years. Nick
2: Saban did at Alabama with all the analysts. Like you get fired, you go spend a year or two as an analyst off the yeah. field working under Nick Saban to rehab your image and get exactly. ready. To... Yeah. yeah.
3: Or... Or the way that, like, uh you know, former GMs will just pop up and rant, like the way Heim Bloom popped up in the Cardinals' front office all of a sudden, yeah. It's like, yeah, we've just hired him to do stuff, basically. Um The Mets and did I that think... too
2: for a little bit. Remember, like JP Ricciardi, Sandy yeah. Alderman, and there was Paul a lot D- of people.
3: Paul De Podesta too before yes. the, uh, before he decamped for the NFL. Which is he still with the Browns or where where is he now? I don't think so. I don't okay. think he's out. Yeah. Um, and as far as I know, with regards to with Theo Epstein rejoining the Red Sox, I don't think. That there's been necessarily any, um, what's it called? Any real definition as to what exactly he's going to be doing? It's you know his, his official officially he's been announced as a part owner and senior advisor. And it's note it's worth noting here, not with not of the Red Sox, but of Fenway Sports Group, the John Henry led ownership co- uh, consortium that owns not just the Red Sox but also Liverpool, uh, Roche Racing, and NASCAR. The Pittsburgh Penguins. I think at least one or two other sports concerns. Um, They have obviously fingers in a lot of different pies. And I think at least on an on a personal level for Epstein, who his last job after leaving the Cubs was working with Major League Baseball um, in terms, and he was particularly focused on on field improvements. I think he was one of the one of the. Working forces behind uh, the pitch clock and a lot of the other on-field changes we've seen in the last couple seasons that have been very, very uh, that have worked pretty well and that seem to have been a bit pretty popular. I-, I get the sense he's not necessarily going to be all that involved in the Red Sox day-to-day stuff. I think this is, in part, probably setting him up to get into that ownership track where hmm. he is fully in, like full owner of something or another. Is it going to be the Red Sox? I mean, that, that I think is probably the most interesting part of this. is Does this say anything about a potential John Henry ownership succession plan? Um, you know, for all of the complaining I've done about the Red Sox, and it is all valid and good, um, <laughs> you know, the, the sense that we've gotten with John Henry and, and with Fenway Sports Group is that they're not really willing to play the game of let's spend a lot of money in pursuit of a title. You mm. know, to say nothing of the fact that Henry is 74 years old, Um, he has won obviously several world series titles with the Red Sox. He's won uh, a premier league title and a champions league title with Liverpool. Uh, he owns the Boston globe. He's worth many billions of dollars. There aren't really many mountains left for him to climb, which I think is Mm. probably a large part of why the Red Sox are where they are. Um, so I, I, do wonder if this is more about kind of setting up a future and bringing back someone whom he clearly trusted and liked. Leaving aside the acrimonious split, which I think for what it's worth, seems to have been more of a Larry Lucchino versus uh, versus Theo Epstein thing than it was a John Henry versus Theo Epstein thing.
2: Who knows necessarily, but it's also the ultimate vibes higher. Like we talk about down bad where I forgot what that video, wherever they were, where the vibes for the Red Sox. Was it was Henry the one who was there where it was just like really, really sad? What was he? and it was just i forgot where it was some kind of it was it the winter meetings or something i don't remember what was going on but it was not that long ago we were like oh it's it's morose and they were were they booing john henry maybe were they it was probably one of those like off-season like fan festival things yes and it wasn't going well but the ultimate bring back like hey we're back is Dio theo epstein
3: and look i i I think especially the timing of the announcement and the way it is kind of you know it's just senior advisor where it's like hmm I think it's designed as a PR thing to be like, "Hey, for all of you guys complaining, look who's back—the guy who broke the curse or whatever." Mm-hmm. And again, I don't expect Theo Epstein to be involved in the Red Sox on a day-to-day level. Like, clearly, this is about getting him involved at an ownership level and across various different sports. Because, like I said, uh, Fenway Sports Group's portfolio is very is diverse and vast. Like, there are mm-hmm. many things he can get involved in. I think this is probably his way of getting more involved in the ownership ranks. If that's something he wants to do, um, you know, maybe he wasn't feeling the same kind of pull from, from working in the league offices anymore. If there is one interesting wrinkle, it's that Epstein was the one who hired Craig Breslow in Chicago to work for the Cubs. So there's clearly a connection there, which I imagine probably didn't hurt in terms of bringing Epstein on board is like, Hey, one of my trusted guys is already here and there's already an established existing connection. But, um, It's hard to say what it means beyond that, in part because, you know, I I can't imagine that Theo has any real sway in terms of either ownership decisions or front office decisions. You know, then I I really doubt he would come back in order to do that. It seems like, again, given the personal connection with Breslow, I can't imagine he'd be coming in to try to Bigfoot his, you know, his former guy. Like, that just, that doesn't really scan to me. So I, I look at it more as... um. Getting him involved with people he already knows, with a, with particularly in a situation which he's already familiar, which is to say, you know, at the top of a Red Sox org chart, you know, to get him into potential, let him explore and see, okay, not just do I want to get involved more in the ownership ranks, but also is it baseball? Is it hockey? Is it soccer? You know, I think similar to the way Billy Bean kind of pivoted away from, you know, once he was no longer general manager of the, of the A's, pivoted more into I'm more interested in soccer or I'm just going to explore what other sports are interesting to me. Um, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if that's kind of the way things end up going with Epstein, with Theo Epstein at FSG, kind of similar to where to how things have played out with Billy Bean in his kind of post-Moneyball days. Either way,
2: it can't hurt.
3: Theo no, Epstein there's, joining there's no with fold no again.
2: There's no downside at all. No. Which is where you really want you want to be. So we'll see. Uh, what that ultimately means, but hey, when you get a Bakota projection like the Red Sox got this week, the you got to do whatever you can. Hey,
3: fangrafts playoff odds are out too, and they agree yeah. that the Red Sox are a team in the American League East.
2: <laughs> well, we'll get to that as well, and we'll compare it oh, yeah. and fangrafts cool. and uh the playoff rankings um on this very show because we're, we're fans of both Bakota and uh fangrafts on this show, John yeah, Taylor.
3: This is, this is a BP uh, and FG friendly podcast,
2: absolutely, absolutely. Um, Something I was thinking about this week, John, is like it's now official in terms of barring injury. Uh, The top three for the Los Angeles Dodgers is going to be Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman and Shohei Otani.
3: Yeah, that rules extremely hard.
2: Not for me when I have to play the Dodgers, Uh, maybe multiple times, multiple series, multiple on multiple series Um, as a a, a Atlanta Braves fan here, John Taylor. Historically, where does that rank? When you just hear Prime Mookie, Prime Freddy Prime Shohei, does that have a case? And we'll see it play out like the greatest one-two-three we've ever seen. Because you think about it, and you're like, "That's three NL MVP favorites to yeah, start it, off it, every game." And we'll hit. It is. Uh, it, it's just it is crazy kind of to, funny to say, say that, that out loud, right?
3: It is kind of funny to think that those three probably are the like immediate like three. Uh, Vegas favorites for right NL MVP odds. And that you have the last year's AL MVP winner last year's NL MVP runner up. And I believe Freeman finished what fourth or fifth in the voting Somewhere in there, yeah. last year, something like that. It mm-hmm. might've been third. I, I can't remember, but it, it, it's hard to say because like, you know, baseball history being as long and varied as it is like, you know, I, I'm sure you and I could probably sit here for a good long while and come up with just terrifying trios. Um, yeah, it's because I think the easiest way in my head to go about it is okay. Well, let's find how many times did they put future Hall of Famers together in a lineup. One that just jumps to mind to me is uh, the. I think what what complicates it a little bit is that by this point the, you know these two guys were no longer necessarily at the peak of their powers, but the Biggio Berkman Bagwell days. Mm um in houston although I, I, that's the thing by that point biggio wasn't really a force anymore his last really good season was 1998 uh berkman's first season in houston was and i'm just looking at it now was 1999 so they they overlapped for a little bit but by the time berkman turned into like a middle of the lineup force biggio was already kind of shifting down into his like more of a pesky slap hitter uh, type position than what he was similarly with bagwell you know, that was, uh, trending toward the end of his kind of more productive years. That, that one just jumped out at me. Um, the 2009 Yankees, I think, mm. you know, looking back, uh, just cause I remember, I mean, anytime you have a lineup with a rod in it, that that's kind of hard to beat, mm. but, you know, having, uh, Jeter, Damon, Teixeira, Arod, one, two, three, four in that season is just frightening to think about like. The OPS plus figures for those guys. Teixeira 141, Jeter 125, Damon 118, A Rod 138. That that's that's impressive. Those guys were top four in that lineup pretty much every single day. So mm. that I think is is another really good option. Um I, I want to pull up Stathead to try to see, you know, what if you can find uh let's see it'd be most players on a team in a season matching criteria. So let's do it from there. Any to any, regular season, non-pitcher. I, I'm sure for those f- folks who are listening, it must be very fun to listen to me narrate, um, to narrate a, a, a stat head search. But mm. let's just do this. Let's start with OPS plus one twenty. Uh, uh, status filters. I don't know. We need to have a minimum playing time of some kind. Uh, minimum five hundred plate appearances. Because that's the other thing that is really well worth noting with the combo of Mookie Freeman and Shohei. Those three guys are pretty much guaranteed given how steady they've been, how how good they've been at avoiding injury, with the exception of Otani as a pitcher. Those three guys are going to be in the lineup for 145 games apiece. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can you can take that to the bank. That is a really dependable trio right there. So you you know that's also important too is finding the guys who are in in that in the lineup day in, day out. Okay. I think in terms of the and this is so this is the stat head search— the team with the most players, regular players, with an OPS Plus over 120, the 1969 Cincinnati Reds. Johnny Bench, Alex Johnson, Lee May, Tony Perez, Pete Rose, and Bobby Tolan. Uh, there are five, no, six other teams that, that meet that criteria. The 1978 Brewers, the 1982 Angels, the 2003 Red Sox, led by NOMA, Bill Miller, Trot Nixon, David Ortiz, Manny Ramirez, and Jason Veritek. I'm a little embarrassed that one didn't immediately come to mind, but whatever. Uh, the 2009 Yankees. Uh, the 2017 Astros, which we'll we'll put a, a decent sized little asterisk next to that one, but um, that obviously was a phenomenal lineup. Uh, that was peak Altuve, uh, Alex Bregman, uh, the one good year of Marwin Gonzalez's career, peak George Springer, peak yuli Gurriel, uh, the last good Josh Reddick season, and then I would not have guessed this: the the last team in this group, the 2022 New York Mets with Pete Alonso, Mark Canha, Francisco Lindor, Starling Marte, Jeff McNeil, and Brandon Nimmo. So it's actually pretty recent that we've had, I mean, those, the last four teams I mentioned are all within the last 20 years. The Mets obviously is only two years ago, and that team had at the top of its lineup, if you look at their most used batting orders, which I also I can't, while I'm doing this, I can't say enough good things about baseball reference. It is such a cool, just tool to be able to do this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, that top three was Nimmo, Marte, and Lindor with Pete Alonzo batting cleanup. That's a really good top four as well. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, it's going to be up there, though. I think that top three is probably going to be up there. I mean, if we if we want to restrict those even further, let's just have some more fun with this. Let's look up the 2023 Los Angeles Dodgers to see. Okay, so Freeman finished with a 161 OPS plus last season, which is ridiculous. Mookie mm-hmm. Betts finished at 163. And Otani, as a hitter, finished at one, 184. Jesus Christ. Rice, this guy's a mutant. All right. Let's do this then. Let's get really let's get really silly. Adjusted OPS plus over 150. We'll even put a, a decent sized floor there. How many times has a lineup had three or more guys with an adjusted any number of guys with an adjusted OPS plus over 150? Let's wait for it.
0: Do 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 do
2: do do do.
3: Okay. We have 10 teams in MLB history that have had three or more hitters in the same lineup with a 150 OPS plus or better. The most recent, the 2004 St. Louis Cardinals with Jim Edmonds, Albert Pujols, and Scott Rowland. So by that criteria, assuming that, and of course, you know, we're not going to assume that they're going to put up exactly the same numbers last year, but just setting that as a floor. The last time we've seen three guys in a lineup this good was 20 years ago with a Cardinals team that made it all the way to the World Series, only to run into a mythical, wonderful Red Sox team that By the way, I should mention, in case people have forgotten or didn't know this, a Red Sox team that was down three games to none in the 2004 ALCS against the New York Yankees only to come back and win the next four games, the first time that's ever been done in a best-of-seven series in MLB history. The Red Sox did it against the New York Yankees. Just want to remind people because, you know, some people don't know. But it's a pretty narrow group. I mean, half of these teams played before 1900. Uh, Six of these teams played before before the Second World War. The only post-integration teams on this list, the 1963 Giants with Orlando Cepeda, Willie Mays, and Willie McCovey. The 1964 Mm. Twins with Bob Allison, Harmon Killebrew, and Tony Oliva. The 1996 Mariners with Ken Griffey Jr., Edgar Martinez, and A-Rod. And as I just mentioned, the 2004 Cardinals with Edmonds, Pujols, and Roland. Keep in mind of the names I've just mentioned. Uh, Cepeda, Mays, McCovey, Killebrew, Oliva, Griffey, Martinez, A-Rod, Pujols, or Roland. That's nine Hall of Famers, Plus, Pujols, who will be 10 whenever when when his time on the ballot comes up, it, it's really really rare to get that much like just star power in a lineup at the same time. So yeah, to, to eventually get around to answering your question, we haven't seen something like this in quite a while. We don't normally get stuff like this. Again, it's only happened, uh, four. Sorry, did I say three or four? Four. I think you said three. Four. Four times. Yeah. Since integration, four teams in the last. Uh, 80 seasons roughly of baseball have done this and the Dodgers are almost certainly going to do it next year. Oh, and by the way, they also have the best uh, Yoshinobu Yamamoto who every projection says is going to be a top 15 pitcher. Mm -hmm. And like even, even leaving aside Otani Freeman and Betts, they also still have Max Muncy and Will Smith and James Altman, who very quietly had a 2020 season last year. And Gavin Lux, who, when he was healthy, was one of the best prospects in baseball. Like, This Dodgers team is going to be so good, man. They're going to be so good. It's going to be so much fun to watch. I want to just fast-forward us to the Braves-Dodgers-NLCS, which almost guarantees that we're now going to get, like, a Reds... uh, Like, a Reds... I was going to say Diamondbacks, but they already did it. I want to get a little new. Reds-Marlins-NLCS? I think Rob Manfred would, like, quite literally jump out of a building if it were a Reds-Marlins-NLCS, but... Notwithstanding, yeah, what the Dodgers are doing, what they've already done in assembling this roster, is special. I'm, I'm really excited to see how it all plays out in reality.
2: Yeah. Well, good news for every NL team, especially the great teams the NL West. It's, it's, it's going to be fun. We're all yeah, going no, a great the, time. That's
3: the fun thing for the National League It's like, hey, these the the Braves and the Dodgers are two of the best teams, like literally ever. Mm-hmm. Have fun, you know.
2: Good luck. Have to enjoy. They'll be fine. Well, It'll it doesn't fine. matter because like a third of the league still not trying. No. Um, John Taylor. Yes. Speaking of teams not trying, mm-hmm. this team is trying. Corbin Burns, after we recorded last week, traded. Like literally the day after. Yes. And I feel like we're responsible based on our conversation about new ownership and this, that, and the other. That's um, true. I
3: forgot that that's what we've been talking about, too, is that Orioles ownership uh, fans should be excited. Turns yes. out we were 100% correct, as usual. Yes, they should be excited because new ownership 100% made that trade happen.
2: It's pretty great. And your reaction when I texted you the Corbin Burns news was and for that. So break down, John Taylor, what this trade means for Baltimore and uh, what this says about Milwaukee and their new era that they are ushering in here.
3: Yeah, so it, it's, it's easy to – the Baltimore side, I think, is the easier one because it's pretty straightforward. The Orioles get a projected top 15 starter in the majors, which is – and we've talked about it more times than I can count – the thing they needed more than anything else this offseason was to get a number one starter, not just, not just a guy who can give you 180-plus innings in the regular season of above-average baseball, but a guy who you can send out in game one of a playoff series and know, not just feel, but know, we have this. Because this is our guy, this is our dude, and I'm not saying you know Corbin Burns is not automatic by any sense. But again, this is this is someone who, when all the projection systems do uh, do run their run their stuff, and I think you know I, I'll just go straight to Prospectus since uh, since Pakota is out now. You know, you look up you look up Corbin Burns or Corbin Burns projections. You know, you're gonna get a guy who is going to finish somewhere in that top 15 or 20 of starters overall. Something the Orioles did not have, and that's even with very optimistic feelings about Kyle Bradish and the fact that uh, Grayson Rodriguez is still one of the more talented young pitchers in baseball, but you didn't have that kind of guaranteed excellence or that body of work that you feel more comfortable out. to say nothing of, you know, now you're also less worried about the Orioles pitching depth because you do have Burns and everyone moves down a step. Now you're not necessarily relying on Cole Irvin having to give you 30 starts in a season. You know, now you're not necessarily relying on Dean Kramer having to be better than league average you know which is something that um is not necessarily a, a guarantee um oh, am I not logged into baseball Prospectus? I'm not logged into anything this is so irritating I wasn't logged into baseball reference I'm not in, logged into baseball prospectus pets heads are falling off it's, a, it's an absolute disaster over here but with like like I said with burns it's pretty straightforward for the orioles Number one starter, which is what they needed, what they didn't spend money on in this offseason. Here here are the Picota projections, for those hmm. who are curious. 29 starts, 175 innings, 193 strikeouts, a three thirty 329 ERA, a 358 FIP, an 80 DRA minus. And for those who don't know what DRA is, it's deserved run average. It's baseball prospectus is proprietary uh, deserved. They have it for offense, too. Deserved runs created. Uh, DRA minus of 80 works the same way, I think, as ERA minus. The lower the figure is, the better. 80 is very good, obviously. Three and a half wins wins above replacement player. That's phenomenal. Again, that is a top 15 starter in the majors. That's something the Orioles desperately needed. I think it pretty much cements them, despite what the projections are saying currently, in my mind, is the best team in the American League East. On the other side of things for Milwaukee, I don't think you and I are necessarily surprised that Milwaukee did this. There had been a lot of smoke this offseason that that Burns was going to get traded. I think it was more or less um, a a given, particularly with how poorly things played out with his arbitration hearing, not this offseason, but the offseason prior, where it became abundantly clear that Milwaukee had no real intention of paying him his worth either over the course of a full season or going forward. And the Brewers are just not a team that hands out big extensions. And you know for a guy like Burns who was guaranteed to go onto the market next year as, uh, the number one pitcher in free agency, he was going to be looking for minimum, minimum $180 million in free agency. I think it's, you you could argue whether it's Burns or Wheeler or Zach Wheeler is the number one guy, but one way or the other, he was going to be looking for a big, big nine figure deal. We knew the brewers weren't going to do that to a certain degree. It was only a matter of time before they made this move. What I don't like about it. And while This is not not a a, a vote against the prospects they receive. Joey Ortiz is a great middle infielder, good defensive second baseman, more likely than not, good solid hitter, the kind of guy Milwaukee really excels at at developing. Similarly with D.L. Hall, a dude who has a ton of talent from the left side, uh, a lot of injury and control issues. But again, Milwaukee is a good pitching development organization. I think they'll be able to get the best out of him. For me, it's less about what they received and more about just the quantity of it, because hmm. or not even so much the quantity about what it says going forward in terms of this is a, a Brewers team that even though they had felt like it taken a step back this offseason in some to mm-hmm. some degree, still was very much in that race for the NL Central, but not in a way where it's like, you know, this is not a team like Houston, for example, or, or, or to give a better example, I think the Dodgers. Um or even the Braves where you feel really confident being like, yeah, they're going to win that division by like five plus games. They've got some margin for error. You know, you can trade away a guy like Corbin Burns. If you feel like either one, you're confident that you're going to win the division pretty handily or two, you've got the reinforcements in house to make up for it for the most part. And ideally three, you then turn around and use that money save to fix some of the other problem spots you have on your roster. But mm-hmm. with the Brewers, they don't have that margin for error. The NL Central is almost certainly going to come down to one or two wins separating the first place from second place, if not third place too. And as we saw last year, it's going to get take a minimum of like 84 wins to, to make it into the wild card spot uh, in the National League or something along those lines. Both Pakoda's standings and Fangraph's standings have the Brewers, I think, right around that 80 to 83 win uh, uh, territory. That's, the, that's a real danger zone for them. That is basically the borderline of the playoffs. And you know, losing Burns takes them from being, I think, a, comfortably, uh, a comfortable NL Central contender to one where they've really put themselves at risk that a better-than-expected year from Cincinnati or a better-than-expected year from St. Louis or a better-than-expected year from the Cubs immediately puts them at a disadvantage, especially because they don't have a guy right now beyond Freddie Peralta ready to step up and take that spot Burns had in that rotation. I, I again, I like DL Hall, but that's not going to be DL Hall, you know, on top mm. of already losing Brandon Woodruff to an injury that cost him that's going to cost him the entirety of this coming season and that ended his Brewers career. You know, it, it, it's the Brewers have put themselves in a scary place here, I think. Yeah. And I can, un, again, I can understand it from the financial perspective of Burns is walking at the end of the season. We're not going to get anything back for him except for a, a, com, a compensation pick when we make him a qualifying offer and he rejects it, you know. But at the same time, this deal, I think, would have been there midseason. You know, I, I, what I don't really understand is the, is the decision to do it now. Jordan Montgomery got more or less the same return. Not the same return in terms of position player or in terms of the positions played, but in terms of the overall value of what you got back. As a, as a midseason deal, and with all due respect to Jordan Montgomery, Jordan Montgomery ain't Corbin Burns. Again, Corbin Burns is a number one starter, one of the 15 best in baseball. It really feels like there should not have been a rush to move him. And if there was, why aren't you getting back more than an infielder and a back of the rotation arm when you have holes on this team that need to be filled? And look, some of that money, it seems like Milwaukee's already using it. You know, they spent, they just signed Gary Sanchez today uh, to be either William Contreras' backup or to be a guy who frees Contreras up to play, to be a DH more often than not, or for Sanchez to be a DH more often than not. We'll see. Obviously, there are some pieces to be moved around there. But it's really at this point in the offseason, unless the Brewers are going to turn around and give $200 million to Blake Snell, which uh, that's not going to happen, it's not going to be possible for them to make up what they're losing in Burns. And what they've lost in Burns may very well be the difference between winning the division or even making the playoffs and nothing at all. And I think when you're, when you're in a position like Milwaukee's is where every single not only is every single win super vital, but because of your financial restrictions, you don't have that ability to do like the Dodgers and just build a super team and put yourself in a position where you're now a World Series favorite, you have to take advantage of every opportunity you've got. And I think moving Burns, again, I understand it from a financial future perspective, but it pretty much cuts them, cuts them off at the knees in terms of being a real World Series contender. And look, I, I don't know that the Brewers work, going to be a real world series contender with Corbin Burns. I don't know if they even would have been the NL Central favorite with Corbin Burns, but it does put them at a significant disadvantage going forward that I don't know how they plan on addressing that beyond hoping that some of the guys they already have in their system be it uh, you know, be it now DL Hall or or someone like to just need to pull up their depth chart really quick cuz I don't know if I don't know the entire Brewers rotation off the top of my head. Um, yeah. Or or maybe, you know, maybe it's someone uh, further down, currently in their system, like uh like an Aaron Ashby, or or you know one of their better prospects, like a Jacob Mizierowski, you know, or, or Robert Gasser. Like maybe you know that that's the hope is that one of these guys can can kind of take that step up and be you know seventy percent of Burns for ten percent of the price. But that's a really risky strategy for an already small market team like Milwaukee is. So I. I get it for them. I really don't like it for the Brewers. I, I just do not like that deal for the Brewers again, in particular, because I think this deal would have been there in July. And I think they would have had that opportunity too with a lot more desperate teams in the mix, as opposed to during the off season, when you, st- when, especially when you still have Blake Snell sitting out there ready for anyone to sign. Um, you, when I think in July, you might've had more of an opportunity to catch a team at a desperate moment and say, Hey, we got a number one starter right here to say nothing of well th- also at that point you're halfway through the season maybe you're in a position to buy if you're the brewers and supplement yeah. what you got. but you know i think now they just put themselves in a position where they have to play catch up and I, I i just don't like that for them
2: i just i think the brewers are they're like doing one of the they're doing the sad tear down where they're just gonna do a little bit at a time to like I, let people know that like we're not we're not trying to be like the royals or we're not just go the A's. We're not yeah. going to do something egregious. We're not going to really rip this down to the studs, but we're going to just casually make this really I, annoyingly 75 to 80 win team for the next I, three to five years.
3: And I think it's a conscious decision. And I think it also, you know, if you're wondering why Craig Council left for Chicago beyond the fact that the Cubs offered him a truck full of money and why David Stearns would leave for the Mets beyond the Mets offering him a truckload of money. I think is probably the understanding that ownership was not going to spend the requisite amount of money necessary to keep this core together. And I think there's probably an understanding on Milwaukee's part that this this particular era of the Brewers, the Corbin Burns, Christian Yelich, Brandon Woodruff uh, core, is Mm. over. And the transition now begins to a team led by Jackson Churio. Um, And I I think I can understand why. Again, this is not a team that makes – Big long-term signings that has necessarily the financial flexibility, or at least so we so we are told that Mark Otonasio, the owner of the Brewers, is not a big spender by any stretch of the imagination. But it's still a bummer. Because and I feel this anytime a team trades a guy like this and kind of commits itself to, like you said, that 75 to 80 win uh kind of portion of, of the cycle, it's just a, such a bummer for fans to be told flat out, hey, we're not putting in full effort here, you know. If we get lucky and everything breaks right, you know, we might make the playoffs and in the process we're going to save some money for the for the organization going forward, but my my take is a, my take is always as a fan, you should not care one iota about how much money your owner spends on building a roster. You should want them maxing out their 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 figurative credit card, if not the literal one. Like, you know, you only have so many chances to win in this league. And when you already have a core as good as Milwaukee's is, and it's it's a good core, it's not a great core, but it's a good one. I, I struggle to understand why you would want to again cut cut it off at the knees, and and rob yourself of that opportunity, unless everything goes not as everything goes exactly right for you, but also everything has to go particularly wrong for everyone else in the NL Central. Because again, this is going to be a it's a bad division, but it's going to be a tight one. You know, there's no there's no runaway favorite here. There's no team that's that's projected to finish anything better than 85 wins. Um, it it's it just it's a shame to me. It's a shame the way some teams treat their fan base that way in terms of just kind of being very cynical about, eh, we're not going to win, so why spend the money? You know?
2: It's not great. It's not great. I would be very... Like, the Brewers, I just feel like, still to me, are like, they're in that worst-case scenario as a fan because you know you're not going to bottom out and at least try to, like, revitalize and get this thing going. Now you're just like, your manager just got stolen you're cat you're just gradually trading away your best pieces like we'll see what kristen yelich eventually gets moved for and guys like that but um i don't know you're in a division that half the teams don't try in a given year it's just going to be kind of depressing i'm sorry milwaukee fans i wish i had a more optimistic view of where things are headed over the next couple of years but just everything about this screams quiet quiet teardown and uh not bad yeah, enough I, to get those number one number two overall picks to I really change things
3: i don't think it's necessarily a teardown. if it is it's one of those kind of skinny rebuilds where it's like we're still going to contend
2: we're just not going to spend much
3: money i mean they're not going to
2: contend they're not contending this yeah. is not a contending roster right like you don't think this is a team that can win the nl
3: i think i think they can definitely win the nl central but win the net win mm-hmm. the pennant no no i yeah. i'd put the brewer's odds of that at roughly like 2%. I mean, if you look over going over to Fangraph's uh, newly released 2024 playoff odds, mm-hmm. they have and this these are odds all obviously calculated uh, post-Burns trade. They have the Brewers 33% to uh, make the playoffs and 1.1% to win the World Series. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, which to, to give some context is roughly the same odds that the, the Padres have, you know, and no one is going to go or the, the, similarly the Mets or the Marlins and no one is going to go into this season being like, you know who I really like to win the World Series? The New York Mets. Well, maybe some Mets fans, but it's maybe, actually probably not even the Mets fans. They've probably all given up. I know.
2: Um, well, uh, we'll see. Um, John, the Royals gave Speaking Bobby Witt Royals. Jr. the biggest contract in franchise history. beating yeah, by out a which... factor of
3: like five. They, they never signed anyone to a $100 million deal before, and they gave Bobby Witt like almost $300 million.
2: Which is crazy, and then I realized, because I was like, oh, who's the highest before this? Oh, Salvador Perez. (laughs) And I was like, oh, this is relatively... Like, the Royals really just don't spend money. You just see it, and you're like, wait, Salvador Perez? And no shots against Salvador. Great all-time catcher for them. The fact that he's the all-time... Not uh, not since
3: the... (laughs) Not since the Halcyon days of Ewing Kaufman owning the team have the Royals Mm -hmm. really been spenders. And those days ended roughly three decades ago, so...
2: But... He quietly really, really performed well, I think, because the Rose are bad and they're just one of those teams to me where if you're just elite on a team like Kansas City, just so much of the country has no idea it's happening. And I feel like Carlos Beltran syndrome. Yes. And he's a superstar. Like you go through his stats. I didn't realize just how good they were last year. Um, What does this mean for Casey? Because I think it's interesting in terms of I think I texted you this too. John, who do you think spent the most money and uh, is has the highest payroll uh, in 2024 in the AL Central? It's the Kansas City Royals. It's the Kansas City Royals. So they lock up Bollywood Jr., great pick, great development. He's a huge win for them. Um, and then they signed some guys <laughs> to fill out this roster. They have signed. They have definitely
3: signed. They're, this Royals roster, the guys they have signed this offseason, are going to be very much a part of any 2020 remember some guys. Uh, oh, yeah. Grouping.
2: And then there's like two things, two schools of thought here, right? Um, it's hard to like separate these if you're a fan or if you're just uh, you're like us and we're just analyzing what the Royals are up to here. They want a new stadium. Uh, mm-hmm. the, sta- <laughs> the Royals want a new stadium and they would like the public to fund uh, a lot of said new stadium. Yes. To get some some interest, some fan interest and some public support. The team needs to be better than what we've seen the last couple of years. Very much so. So the Royals are spending money again. The problem is you look at Pakota and fan drafts, and you're like, they're going to have the highest payroll in the AL Central and the wins aren't really coming here. So I don't know what to make if this like, do you look at these moves as still sound? And like, even if you remove the stadium aspect to this, like. Does this still look like a quality, smart offseason and how they should have operated this year?
3: Yeah, I, I look, I I think you're right that, that this is not a Royals team that's going to contend. You know, again, going back to the, the at least just because I'm already here, the, the Fangrafts uh, 2024 playoff odds, they've mm. got the Royals projected to go 75 and 87. That's a 10.8% chance of making the postseason, which hey, granted, that's not nothing. On the other hand, it's the third lowest odds in the entirety of the AL. The only teams with, but with worse odds to make the postseason are the White Sox and the A's, both of whom have effectively stopped trying. Um, the A's have literally stopped trying, and the White Sox just... I mean, the, the, only by the grace of the White Sox, more likely than not, will the, Tiger, will the Royals avoid finishing in, in last place. Mm-hmm. However, I think what's really important about this Royals offseason is the understanding from last year that you have to have a higher floor. Because that Royals team last year was an abject disaster. Again, they, they won. They lost 106 games. Mm. They were awful. And not just awful, but unwatchable. So I think, and I, I do think the stadium does really play a big part in this. In terms of when you add guys like Hunter Renfro and Michael Waka and Seth Lugo and three-time World Series champion Will Smith, which is just never going to stop being funny to me, Mm-hmm. You're not doing it because you're under the expectation that those guys are suddenly going to change this from a hundred loss team to a 90-win team. That that that's not gonna happen. But you are doing it with the expectation that you're gonna go from hundred losses to like 90 to maybe even 85. To who knows? Maybe you get lucky, the rest then you take advantage of the fact that this is a weak division where you know the Guardians aren't really trying, where the Tigers are kind of caught in between um after the kind of failure of their last rebuild attempt, where the White Sox have just flat-out given up, and yeah. you think to yourself, hey, we're probably not going to beat the Twins. We may not be as good as Cleveland, but there's a chance here that we finish somewhere like second or third in this division, and then we have real momentum going forward. Mm-hmm. And look, like are Michael Waka and Seth Lugo and Hunter Renfro going to be part of the next great Royals team? No. Those are short-term guys brought in to help prop up a roster at positions of need, particularly in the starting rotation of the bullpen where the Royals got very, very little production. But you 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 sorry, you raise the floor, you build momentum, you show fans that you're still trying. And even if it's showing fans that you're still trying solely for the purpose of trying to squeeze money out of them so you can get a new stadium, well, at least you're still trying. And mm-hmm. and if nothing else with the Wit move, which I, I love by the way, I think the Wit is exactly the kind of guy you signed to a long-term deal, Ala Fernando Tatis uh a few years ago, ideally mm-hmm. with a better progression, but still. Um you show them too that we're not just building to be better now we're building to be better in the future because that's what wit's yeah. all about you know it's about showing you that hey we are making this commitment we're going to have this guy here forever you can, and for fans that means so much to be like you're always going to be able to identify with this guy guys like michael waka and hunter renfro will come and go because that's just the nature of free agency with with older veteran players but there's always going to be bobby wit you can feel comfortable as a, as a royals fan buying that bobby wit jersey you know knowing that He's gonna be there. You're gonna get to you're gonna get to watch him spend his career with this team. Mm. And you're gonna get to watch a core get built around him. But I, I think this is where the real issue for the Royals crops up, though. Is right now that core is Bobby Witt Jr. and Cole Raggins and Vinny Pascantino and then nothing else. Yeah. This is a team hyper deficient on young talent. They have And that's five, what they
2: should have been theoretically building the yeah, last five this, plus years. This
3: is the extreme problem with the last few years for the Royals is that they failed. Utterly, with the exception yeah. of wit, wit, and to be to, well, not to take away too much from the Royals, but wit was as like easy. That's a layup. That guy was the yeah. number two overall pick. Was one of the was arguably the best high school player in the country the year he got drafted. And it's the son of an ex major leaguer. That is yeah. as easy as it gets in terms of player development. <laughs> in particular, it's the pitching where they failed so badly. Um, where you, you know the the guys like Jackson kowar or um, to a certain degree Brady Singer. Or mm. you know some of the other guys they've now got floating around down in the minors like Daniel Lynch or or Alec Marsh those guys have just not clicked yet and they probably never will to a certain degree and that's the real big problem for for Kansas City you look at their farm system which uh, coming out of the 2023 season Fangraphs had rated I believe 27th in the majors somewhere in that bottom five mm. not once the not one single 50 future value or better prospect in that system right now. Um, and to, and not just that, but you look at that farm system and where the where most of their guys are, it's still going to be a couple years before you start seeing some of these dudes make it to the majors if they make it at all. You yeah. know? this is Signing Witt is not a sign that there's this immediate transformation on the horizon. It's more that, well, now we have a, a foundational piece in place so that ideally, if and when these guys are ready, Bobby Witt's already there, and so is Vinny Pascantino, and so is Cole Raggins, and so is whoever else. You know, who, so is Nick Lofton, their current top prospect. But, I mean, I, I don't want to sugarcoat it for Royals fans. It's it's still going to be a rough season, you know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, and that's the thing. I think the best case scenario for this Royals team is something like a 500 record. And that would be an astonishing development.
2: Does that win the AL Central?
3: <laughs> that's the sad thing, is it could, but, it, you know, it's, I think more likely than not is, and I, I feel like I'm in line with what Fangra says, is like 75 wins. That's a big step up from last year. That's that's actually close to competency, but it doesn't it doesn't really matter what happens this year unless you can couple it with significant forward development and advancement in the minor leagues with your prospects and a really good draft on top of that. That's what the I just
2: don't know if I'm going to bet on that.
3: No, and I don't want to bet on it either, because aside from Raggins and wit and again, wit was kind of a layup. Yeah, We have not seen signs that the Royals know what they're doing when it comes to player development over the last, really since they won the World Series. It's been a long time since we felt like the Royals knew what they were doing in that regard or another. And look, they're going to get, I'm just looking up quickly, they're going to get a top five pick, I believe, in in this coming draft. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Guardians have the number one pick, which is never going to stop being funny to me. I love that there's a draft lottery just for stuff like that. Uh, Sorry, the Royals have the number six pick, um, which is fine. It's, it's not supposed to be a great draft, but that that's fine. Um, they have now Wit locked in for the long term, but again, it really is all going to come down to can they elevate the farm system? Can they get that player development on track? Because otherwise, this is going to play out, like you said, as it has with, with more or less every single star player that the Royals have had, with the exception of that brief World Series run, where it's just one shining star in a heap of garbage.
2: Go Royals!
3: Go Royals! I mean, look. Maybe. I mean, Royals fans, Royals fans should be happy if nothing else that Witt will be there. You know, he's a really yeah. easy player to root for. He's a supreme talent. He's a, he's exactly who you want to build your franchise around. So, in in that in that respect, at least, this Royals offseason has been a has been a home run. They've done great work this offseason. It's not going to add up to a championship, barring the uh, 28 other teams like falling into a, a giant uh, sinkhole, but it's a step forward and particularly it's a good sign, even if it is a cynical, well, we want a new stadium, so we got to make the mouth breathers happy. Right. Like it it's a good sign that at least Kansas city knows what a competent off season looks like to a certain degree.
2: I agree. Final thing here. We'll do Pocota and fan graphs next week. Right, let's make that the theme of next week's show, breaking those right. down and what we like and what we don't like, um, or where we're thinking and how we're reevaluating um, yeah. based on what the, the numbers are showing here. Um, Jose Altuve is we it's funny things we talk about in this pod and then we're like it's either going to be uh, Tucker or um, Bregman or Altuve who's going to be the final one it, and we've wondered for years right like who is going to be the one fine the Astros were going to do it for somebody like somebody yeah. who is going to get the Astro for well, life it, tag
3: it was set up so perfectly because both Altuve and Bregman were set to be free agents at the end of the offseason yeah. it, is, it was going to be that that hard choice for Houston of well, which one do we keep? Cause we're probably not going to be able to keep
2: both. Yep. And they kept Altuve and that's what we predicted it. last week. So Altuve officially an Astro for life. John Taylor. Yeah. Barring something weird. And I think it's,
3: it's the right decision for both. I think in that for H- Jose Altuve means more to Houston and thus is worth more to Houston than he would be to any other team in baseball. Yeah. And you know, you can look at it from a step from a standpoint of he's 35 years old. Um, he's no longer particularly a good. He was never really a good defensive second baseman. That's just, that continues to trend downward. You know, why are you giving this guy a five year, hundred million dollar plus deal for what will almost certainly be the worst years of his career. And I think the answer is, and what, what I find so surprising that they've done this particularly because Houston is has a Belichick Patriots level degree of like unsentimentality when it comes to, you know, to handing out contracts like this is, because it's worth it to them, yeah. Because that those kinds of things do matter. It does matter to be able to say Jose Altuve was an Astro for life when he goes into the Hall of Fame. And I have pretty full confidence at this point that Jose Altuve, uh, assuming that he doesn't um, just you know lose all his limbs sometime in the next.
2: Oh wait, uh, are we sure Altuve is a Hall of Famer?
3: It's a it's a it's a bigger debate. I think if nothing else, he's... writers
2: are going to hold a lot of stuff. I suspect. Well, over I those Astros. What I'm
3: curious about, and I think we'll see that. What we'll see is how it's played out with Carlos Beltran and whether or not Mm. Beltran, by virtue of being the first guy from that group to face that the writer's wrath, essentially ends up soaking up a lot of that damage Mm. and leaving it clearer for a guy like Altuve, who it's also worth noting, you know, very less conclusively connected for sure than either Beltran or Alex Cora or even to a certain degree, Alex Bregman.
2: But doesn't um, he feel like, I mean, the memes and everything else with him covering his shirt, his jersey, this, that, and the other. Like, I just feel like he's, uh, fair or not, kind of the face.
3: I, I I, think to a certain degree you're right. But I also think that by the time he retires, which let's assume he runs out the course of yeah. this deal. We're talking about 10 years from now is when guys are, when writers are going to be start debating those questions. And let's be perfectly
2: really clear. It's not like a performance enhancing thing. It's just a, and that, like, and we'll never part. know for sure what all, like, that will never be completely known. But we're just saying like, we're just speculating as to whether or not Altuve will, the narrative will work for Altuve because narratives matter uh, for guys getting into the Hall of Fame. And I just don't know what the, and like you said, we don't know what it's going to be like and what the temperature for those Astros guys are going to be like 10 years from now.
3: I mean, I will say that I I do think there will be guys who are writers or voters who are just dead set on being like, no, he won't get in for me because he was involved in this thing. We never, we don't know how much, but. I mean, not knowing how much didn't stop anyone from making guesses on steroid and PED yeah. stuff with guys who were conclusively not connected to it, like Jeff Bagwell or, or Mike Piazza, you know, it's not going to stop writers from and voters from doing that with Altuve. But I do think the shape of his career so far, the likelihood that he gets to, to 3,000 hits, I mean, you you look at where he's at career-wise now um, over the course of the last... This is, this is going to be his 14th season in the majors, which is insane for a guy with his particular build. He's over 2,000 hits now. Um, it, it, I don't know if he gets to 3,000, but he's, if he doesn't, he's going to get very close. I think close enough to that it might as well be 3,000. Um, to say nothing of, I think his particular, especially when it comes to being him as a hitter, I think with his ability to control the strike zone, with his phenomenal back control, some of the best in the majors, there's a prospect there. This isn't a guy who relies on his speed or hyper athleticism necessarily. This is a dude who I think can age relatively well. Um, I think there's a good chance. I think he's at the very least in the conversation as a Hall of Famer. Again, we'll see how the next five years play out. But with regards to Houston, too, I think they also understood that it wasn't going to cost them terribly much to do this. Because the other side of this is what would it cost to extend Alex Bregman? And similarly with the Brewers and Corbin Burns, I think you're looking at a number that begins with a two. As in, I think it's going to cost a minimum $200 million to get Bregman to a long term deal, as he's a younger player, a better hitter, a better defender. You know, a a more just, an overall just better player, I think, than Altuve is at this stage. So I think the Astros understood, okay, we're not really, we don't know what this is going to look like. It's it's almost entirely unlikely that Bregman will take any deal we offer him unless it's over, like way over what he would have expected or what we would feel imprudent. But with Altuve, you know, they didn't necessarily get a discount, but they didn't have to go, they're not stretching their money terribly much. It's a front-loaded deal too. You know, it'll be a little easier to swallow the decline years because of that. And I think there's, again, not only is there something to be said about the value of a franchise having that guy around for the fan base, but also just for the stability he provides. He's very clearly a super important player uh, in that clubhouse and for the leadership of that team and just for the model and example he sets. um, And I think Bregman is similar. You know, Bregman, you know, one of the real shames of the trash can scandal is that Bregman is the kind of player that, you know, every high school coach across the country points at him and goes, that. That's the guy. That's the hmm. dude you want to be. You know, is is the kind of baseball rat that Bregman is. But I think Altuve is in a really. I think Altuve is a very similar player to a, a, just a guy who loves the sport, loves to play the game, gives a hundred and it's it's all this is all Jeter cliches, but hundred ten percent intangible effects, blah 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 blah. Um. So. Yeah, I. I. I, I think it's a good move for Houston. Obviously it makes sense for Altuve. He was never going to get this money. I don't think as, as a free agent, it would only really ever made sense for him to stay with Houston. I, I think it's good. I think it's just good for both sides overall, even if it, even if it doesn't work out necessarily in an on field level, because again, these are going to be the worst years of Jose Altuve's career. Almost certainly it still matters for what it means to Houston, to the fan base, uh, to the To the roster itself, especially to see you know to have to know that that guy is going to be there and to be able to kind of ha- like go into spring training knowing that that's not hanging over their heads anymore. Uh, we'll see what they do with Bregman again. I'm I'm incredibly skeptical that the Astros will work something out with him before he hits free agency. But if he does reach free agency, there's there's no obviously there's no rule that he can't re-sign with the Astros if that's what it comes to. I think it just makes sense for Houston to have gotten this piece of particular business out the way um so that they then now can turn their focus to okay what does bregman want okay does a kyle tucker extension make sense you know what can we do to keep this core together for as long and as functional as as functionally as possible because and this is something too worth noting with houston the future with the exception of being built around guys like jordan alvarez and kyle tucker you know this farm system has definitely slid in the last few years this is not Mm -hmm. the same organization that's been pumping out you know top prospect after top prospect are instantly turning pitchers into Cy Young candidates. Uh, some of that, of course, is just draft position. Some of it, too, is the very real brain drain that has affected the Astros over the course of over the course of the last uh, eight or nine years. Now, that's a very real thing that's very hard to replace. You know, it, I think it means something too to Houston to be able to keep this court and cast together as long as possible um, to just get as much out of them as possible. Because I think they, I think the Astros know, or at least understand that the future is not going to be super kind to them. You know, this is again at the end of the 2023 season, the 29th ranked farm system in the majors, according to Fangraphs. like this is not a terribly good farm system. It does not have a lot of super high upside prospects. Those that it does have are, are still a few years away. So I think it makes sense too, to have that continuity with Altuve, to have him extend that window as long as possible. Um, So I, I, I like it for Houston, even if, even if the money part of it does, even if the numbers attached to it do feel a little like, how did he get that much?
2: it's also just i mean he's it's gonna be fine like it's probably gonna be ugly those last few years for but sure 100 it doesn't matter he won you the titles he's the face of your franchise um like you said we'll see if he makes the hall of fame but either way like the the astros are all in right now and this is gonna get ugly uh the last couple of years no matter what it's worth it it's all worth it and uh we'll see what it what it all means for houston but either way um Jose Altuve. Uh, it's always cool to see guys where it's like, there's no question if they do make the Hall. they'll be, they won't be in Jim Leland situation where they just go in with no cap because the, we don't know. The, the best joke I saw about Jimmy Leland
3: was that he should have the Marlboro logo. On I his love hat, that. Yes. Which I, I 100% co sign But yeah, there is real tangible value to this guy was an Astro for life. And if he goes into the Hall of Fame, it's going to be with an Astro's cap and he's going to be connected to this franchise forever. Like, I'm fascinated with guys like
2: Freddie Freeman though like I don't know Braves fans might I I genuinely again we'll see years from now but there are certain ones where you're like I'm I can't wait to see how it goes and what the response is with certain hat choice picks it's so silly but yeah it it is I
3: mean regardless when Freddie Freeman gets into the Hall of Fame I'm sure Braves fans will turn out in big numbers but I, I do think
2: I mean if he's here for I don't know what he'll pick actually I assume Braves but I think he might be know. the kind of go to guy, the kind of guy to go with the blank cap. I just hate the blank cap. The blank I do cap
3: too. I, I wish there were a different way to handle it, um, but I do think he's going to be one of those guys where it's like I don't want to disrespect either fan base, and I adore. You know, obviously, he has very deep connections and feelings to to Atlanta, to the franchise, yeah. to the city. You know, I, I can see him being one of those guys where it's like, even though I won my my even, and plus he he won a World Series in Atlanta. Obviously, um, you know he has yet to do that with the with the Dodgers, but. You know, I hopefully I that continues. I many are many
2: are hoping that his, that it continues uh, for the foreseeable future. Not just Braves, folks Braves who have fans that, coming yeah.
3: up to me with tears in their eyes saying, sir, <laughs> sir, can you believe that Freddie Freeman hasn't won a World Series with the Dodgers? But yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I can it. see being I can see being one of those guys who it's like out of respect to Atlanta and the fans who I care about so much. I'm going in with with no no logo on my cap because he doesn't want. I just
2: don't like it. Now, that know. shouldn't be allowed. Pick a side coward. You got to pick <laughs> one. Uh, <laughs> freddie freeman you coward hurt someone yeah like just pick someone to hurt just pick someone freddie you got to do it man rip the I band-aid mean, off make it you sting. really do i mean i don't think mookie's gonna have a problem
3: no mookie is 100 gonna go to the hall of fame as a dodger and i'm gonna yeah cry like a tiny child when that happens so
2: could the red Sox? did they could they was that a hold on mookie what red boston what that that could have been like a long term guy for y'all, right? Like Mookie. Yeah, for you, sure. They, they just. Oh, I'm doing a bit, John. I was, I was doing a bit. Why did I fall for that? I was trying to make what it as we, obvious as I possibly could. Weak.
3: No, for a second <laughs> there, I just thought you were having a
2: stroke or something. No, nah, I, I was just about like, to ask if you could
3: smell toast.
2: I don't ever really smell toast. I don't make toast that much.
3: No. It's, no so no, if I no? ever smell
2: toast, I know I'm I'm having a stroke okay, because that's, that's I never part. make it. So if I'm yeah. No. Okay,
3: that's good. You don't. You're not. You're not a toast guy. Yeah.
2: Bread's I like fine toast. cold. I, I like I toast because use... it's a
3: whole different meal. It's like someone looked at bread and was like, I know what I can do with this. And they made a whole new meal just by setting it on fire.
2: I just, Great. the only time you'll get toast from me is grilled cheese. That's about it. But okay, that's, that's fair. I mean, I did. I went through a panini phase in my mid twenties when I was really bougie. <laughs> like, a uh, phase.
3: We all we all have one. We all have our panini face.
2: My panini maker was so fucking disgusting in my mid 20s because you're supposed to clean it all the time. And I'm just like, oh, I'll get to it. Oh, you yeah, know,
3: having having a panini press is a terrible investment because, like you said, you're just scraping melted cheese. Yeah. Um, Off of that thing constantly.
2: I mean, just who knows what I inhabited uh, from using that for a long period of time with no thorough deep cleans. Uh ever really uh partake in there but i look whomst among us hasn't gone through their panini press phase here in their mid-20s um john taylor uh thank you as always my friend more major league baseball next week on this show and i'm excited to see which team does something else major uh who's your prediction uh which team does something right after we get done recording
3: someone has to I'm gonna say Cubs. I, I say the giants with blake snell because i think mm. if they go if they go into spring training with things as they currently are I think that fan base is going to check out completely because things are not
2: good there. Things are really not good in San Francisco. I mean, shout out to Grant Brisby. Keep taking pictures of San Francisco and why it's a good place to live and maybe you you can turn the narrative around. Blake Snell and be like, don't you, don't you like, don't don't you like Vietnamese food? Don't you like the sea lions? look at the sea lions. They're nice.
3: They're cool. Yeah. Hang out at fisherman's wharf uh, with that dude who would hide in the bushes and scare people when they walk by. (laughs) Maybe the Giants should sign him.
2: I don't know. There you go. Uh, John Taylor, always a pleasure, and I'll talk to you next week. Sounds good.
1: Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas podcast. Hell yeah.